Would you please stand in reverence for God's Word? We're going to read Matthew 1, verses 1 through 5, the beginning of verse 5. And uh, after we finish, Ashley's going to pray for us. So I have confidence in you. Let's read it in a nice, loud voice so that we can cover up each other's mistakes. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for who you are, and I thank you, God, that you are sovereign and good, and every one of these names is important to you. I thank you that you see each individual person um, from the beginning of creation on as individuals and who are loved by you and made in your image. And Lord, I pray that as we come to your word and we study, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand, that you would give us a passion and a hunger for understanding, for knowledge, for depth of insight through your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would bless John and anoint him with your words, um, give him the things that you want him to say. And I pray, Father, that, um, that we would not approach this season um, or your word lightly, that we would come in reverence and awe because you are mighty and amazing and worthy of our adoration. So we love you, Lord, and we praise you and give this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks, Ashley. Well, uh, last week we started the sermon series called uh, Family Secrets, looking at the surprisingly good news hidden in Jesus' genealogy. And on a scale of uh, like skippable to stimulating, where would you put the reading that we just did? Skippable to stimulating. Probably more on the skippable side. That's the part of the Bible that you're like, like you're, okay, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to read the New Testament this year, and you start with Matthew chapter 1. You're like, man, that was dry. That was a rough start. That's the skippable uh, part of the Bible for many of us, this list of names of Jesus' family tree. And when we started this last week, if you missed last week's sermon on Tamar, it was the most fun preaching I've had in a really long time because I got to use the phrase, he spilled his semen on the ground and the Lord put him to death in a sermon. It was hilarious. And there were first-time people who were like blushing, but I was having a lot of fun. Uh, but it was fun uh, to, to study that. It's fun to say it again. I just had to. Uh, to study the passage, we see this Tamar, like this one random name in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, and there's a really cool story attached to her. And uh, today we're looking at another one of those names. It's funny that a name of a woman would show up in a genealogy in, in the ancient world because most genealogies were what you'd call patrilineal. They went from male to male, father to father to father to father. And last week we saw the first name of a woman in the genealogy with Tamar. And the, the reading that we just did together ended with the name of another woman, uh, Rahab. Now, Tamar's story was, was so weird, it led us to Genesis chapter 38, where uh, Abraham's great-grandson, Judah, accidentally slept with his daughter-in-law, and there's a long story there that's kind of disturbing. But we started with uh, Matthew 1, the name Tamar, which led us to Genesis chapter 38, where we read this 
fairly disturbing story. And you're like, why on earth is that in the Bible? And then we go 11 chapters forward, and we see in Genesis 49 that there was something really important about this line of Judah continuing, this line, the family lineage of Judah. And Jacob, the father of Judah, speaks this prophetic word over his 12 sons. And he has a specific word for Judah that was of import for us last night. So this is Genesis last week. This is Genesis 49.10. Jacob said, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is giving royal imagery. There will be kings coming from the line of Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs, a singular he, shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Reveals there's something important in God's big picture plan along the family line of Judah. And what's cool to me is in the first book of the Bible, we hear whispers of God's plan, the whispers of a coming Messiah, the anointed one or the chosen one a king who would come and free his people from their sins, a king who would head off evil at its source. And we also saw last week how God used this resourceful and creative woman in Tamar as part of that plan. And what's so cool about that to me is this is a totally disturbing chapter and come in like, like springboarding off a really boring chapter. But in the middle of it, we find these messages of hope, how you know, God's plans don't always feel like victory. We saw, with, we saw the fragility of the family at that time. God's plans don't always feel like victory. Sometimes it feels like it's being held together with prayer and a duct tape, but God's plans still prevail. We saw how the, men, the evil of humanity would not stop God's plans from going forward. Judah and his sons made horrible and destructive choices, and yet God's plans were not thwarted. We see with Tamar how God can use anybody no matter how broken the person, no matter how broken the family situation, God can use anybody. We see in the whispers of the Messiah in the passages that we studied how we received in Jesus the kind of king and Messiah who includes foreigners and women like Tamar, which was so controversial in, this, in the, the historical context. And then finally, we saw how Tamar's ordinary faithfulness contributed to God's big picture story in ways that she could not have possibly imagined which gives us hope because most of us don't feel like our life is like some grand narrative. Most of life is like, like paying bills and going to work and like every now and then we think, yeah, I was trying to think about God. Man, I keep forgetting. Taking care of our kids. Tamar's ordinary faithfulness contributed to God's bigger picture plan in ways that we could not have imagined, she couldn't have imagined, and that gives us hope. And for me, what's so significant about this journey from Matthew 1 to Genesis 38 to Genesis 49 to these messages about hope is that we didn't approach this sermon, uh, this, this topic, like thinking topically. We didn't come forward thinking like, I'd really like to find a sermon on how to have a functional family because we definitely didn't find it in this passage. We see deep you know, distress in a family. We didn't come to it thinking like, let's have a sermon on like how to manage holiday stress. We didn't do anything like that. We took this one chapter in the Bible that was, quite frankly, fairly boring. And we're like, all right, God, what do you have hidden here? And we found hidden in a name, Tamar, this treasure. And it led us on a treasure hunt to Genesis and then other parts of the Bible. We see that there was something rich, hidden, hiding in plain sight, and something that was altogether kind of boring. We put to the test the scripture that we referenced last week that Paul, in a letter to a young pastor named Timothy, said, 
All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man and woman of God may be fully equipped for every good work. The whole thing is worthwhile. The whole thing is useful. Uh, I grew up uh, loving God, my parents. I'm so grateful for my parents. Uh, Raised us in church. We knew how to pray. We knew how to worship. I memorized a ton of Scripture as a little kid, which was really impactful for me. But when I was 17 or 18, I I had a deep hunger to study God's Word, like really study for the first time. And uh, I graduated high school, and in the summer of uh, after high school, I worked at New Life Ranch as a a worship leader. And I went to Mardell before the summer, and I bought this great big 10-pound Bible. It's like, I'm going to study this thing. So early in the mornings at camp, I would wake up before any of the campers, and I would hike up into the foothills of the Ozarks to this outdoor chapel that was at New Life, and I would just read the Bible. I'd read five chapters from the Old Testament and five chapters from the New Testament. And it was one of those rich seasons where I was just soaking up everything. I was probably misinterpreting tons of stuff. But it was so rich and informative to me. And uh, when I was done reading and praying, I'd walk down the hill. And, uh, you know, kids would be doing polar dip in the creek. And I felt like Moses coming down from the mountain of God. I felt like my face was shining with brilliance, like Moses, after seeing God, was so radiant, he had to put a hood on so people wouldn't be blinded, and it's exactly how I felt, uh, really soaking up uh, God's Word and studying uh, Scripture. To study the Bible is a thrilling thing to discover. There's a reason people have kept reading and studying this for so long. And all of this makes uh, our adventure next year really compelling, that next year we're calling uh, 2019 the year of the Bible. So on January 1st as a church, we're going to begin reading through Scripture, uh, using some tools to assist us in the journey. And uh, we're going to end on December 24th, 358 days later, with Revelation chapter 22. And I'm throwing out topical sermons for next year, and we're just going to preach from what we're reading and what we're soaking up together as a church. If, if you go to our website, cornerstonetulsa.org, uh, there's a, a tab that says Year of the Bible, and you can see the tools that we're going to use to begin going through that. And so we'll share more about that. So next year's the Year of the Bible. After that, we're never going to read the Bible again at Cornerstone. Uh, we'll move. No, we won't move on. But, uh, but that's what we're going to do. There's, there's treasures hidden here. And it's in the interest of our mission as a church. We want this story to shape us. We want to be a community shaped by the gospel. Uh, we want to l- learn God's story and love God's story and find our place in God's story so we can join God in the renewal of all things. So in our reading today, we we came across the second name of a woman, Rahab, which takes us to the book of Joshua, which is the sixth book in the Bible. If you want to turn there, you can. It will be in Joshua 1 and 2. Uh, Put you in context uh, of the story so far. In Genesis, God has chosen this guy Abraham and said, I'm going to bless your family, and that family becomes the nation of Israel. In the second book of the Bible, Exodus, that family goes down to Egypt, and there they are enslaved for 400 years. They cry out to God who hears their prayer. He raises up a deliverer named Moses, and Moses uh, uh, worked with God, and God led them out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, led them to Mount Sinai, where God revealed his law. And then in Leviticus and Numbers of Deuteronomy, we see God expounding his law. This is what it means to be my covenant people. 
He showed them grace first by rescuing them from slavery, but then he said, this then is how you live in response to the grace that I've shown you. I want you to be my covenant people. Through this family, I'm going to bless all the families of the world. But they're rebellious. They wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy with their leader, Moses, uh, uh, getting old, they're on the edge of the promised land, on the other side of the Jordan River, looking at the land that God had promised to give Abraham. And there, Moses dies. And he passes the baton to a young leader named Joshua. And, and God was establishing Joshua as the next leader of Israel and said, just as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. Just as God parted the Red Sea for Moses, he parted the Jordan River for Joshua and the Israelites so they could walk through. But the first place they were going to take on in their conquest of the promised land, Canaan, was a fortified city called Jericho. And Jericho represented a major threat and obstacle for the people of Israel entering into the promised land. And so Joshua was a smart guy and a good military leader. And so before he sent all of the armies of Israel into the, the world into, to take on the fortified city of Jericho, he first sent uh, two spies, two spies. And the spies enter the city through this uh, house that was on the exterior wall um, that had easy access. And we learn that it was to the great benefit of the person who lived there that this house was one that people could enter and exit discreetly because the person who owned this house uh, was a prostitute. Another woman who finds herself in a precarious situation. Her clientele are people who don't want their names and their identities known, so they're able to enter and exit her home discreetly. Prostitution has always been around, and, uh, and, and it's always been stigmatized. And in ancient Israel, it was stigmatized for uh, a few reasons in particular. One of those was the, the moral effect of extramarital sexuality on the person and on the community. Uh, from the beginning, God had something to say about human sexuality and, and knew that extramarital sexuality was harmful for a person and for the community. And so a prostitute was, was the kind of person that the Proverbs and the Scriptures warn you against. This is Proverbs 5, verses 3 through 5. For the lips of the adulterous woman or the prostitute drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. It feels like honey. It feels like something sweet on the front end, but on the back end, it costs you everything. So there's the moral effect on the person and on the community of extramarital sexuality. But the second thing, especially in Israel, was the familial complexities surrounding prostitution. And so uh, Israel was an ethnic nation. They descended from the 12 bloodlines, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so for an Israelite, it was very important to have tribal identity and to know where they fit in their family, in their clan, in their tribe. And the most established of Israelites could trace their family line by naming the generations above them. Well, it's difficult to trace the family line if you don't know who the father is. And so for a prostitute who often was the mother of children and the, and the father was unknown, her family line became deeply forgettable because you couldn't trace it. And so for an ethnic nation of Israel, a prostitute presented a meaningful challenge for ethnic national identity. Now, that's a problem with any prostitute, but Rahab in particular presented uh, an interesting uh, pickle for the people of Israel. She was a meaningful threat. Uh, if you went to BibleGateway.com and you searched for the name Rahab, you would see it pop up in Joshua, 
But then it pops up a bunch in the rest of the Old Testament. If you read it, if you read the name Rahab in the rest of the Old Testament, it's not talking about this woman that we're talking about today. It's the translation of a word that means sea monster. Talk about in Job, it'll talk about Leviathan, the beast in the sea. That's Rahab. Rahab is sometimes translated dragon. Rahab is sometimes used as, as a, a code name for the nation of Egypt, which always represented an enemy to Israel. Rahab is like the man-eater. She's like the Hall and Oates song. Can anybody sing it? Okay. Uh, do you want to sing it for us? Okay. Uh, she's dangerous. She's a prostitute. She's non-Jewish, and she's a man-eater. This woman is a triple threat. We're supposed to be slightly uncomfortable hearing her name. So in Joshua 2, the spies enter her home, and people watching on the walls see it. And so the king of Jericho sends guards to Rahab's house and says, hey, bring out the men who were with you. And when the door knocks, she takes them up to the roof of her house, and she hides them under these stalks of flax. And when she opens the door, she's like, what are you doing here? She says, oh, yeah, they left. They went that away. And so uh, the people go and pursue the spies. And Rahab goes up to the house and says, you're in the clear. They're like, why on earth would you side with us in this? And Rahab gives this, this really great response in Joshua 2, verses 8 through 11. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord, Yahweh, has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, or what you did to Sihon and Og, another two great pair of names for you parents out there, uh, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab is a really practical woman. See, she has survived by her wits. She's doing deeply vulnerable work and has managed to live to, t to tell the tale. She's a deeply practical woman, and she's learned, she's heard of all the rumors of what's going on with this new nation, Israel, and their God. And she knows that Israel's God is not a God to be trifled with. And so she's quick to adjust her behavior so that in the end, she ends up on the side of the God of Israel. And using that, that end that she has with the spies, she pleads to them on behalf of her family, her mother and her father and her brothers and her sisters. And they come to terms. They say, look, we're going to take this city down, but if you'll hang in your window a scarlet cord, we will protect you and you'll be under the Lord's protection and you and your family and all who are in your home will survive. And so the spies go back. They say, we can do this. We can take the land. And uh, God instructs them, cross the Jordan, and I want you to march around the city one time every day for six days. Maybe you remember the little felt board story version of this as a child at Sunday school. But on the seventh day, on the day of rest, God was going to accomplish his victory through these people. So on the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times, and at God's command, they shouted and they blew their trumpets, and the walls of the city came tumbling down, and the Israelites went in to take the spoil and to, to drive out the enemies. But then they, were, they made good on their promise. This is Joshua 6. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her. 
Because she hid the men, Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. One of the best bits of advice I got from a Bible teacher in high school about how to read the Scriptures, he just said, Scripture teaches Scripture. So you come across something that seems unremarkable or doesn't make sense, just keep reading and read, light, read Scripture in light of Scripture and learn to have a biblical imagination. And so as we turn on our biblical imagination, we take this last line, Rahab lived among the Israelites to this day. We can imagine that she has had a meaningful change of fortune. The next time that Rahab, this woman, is mentioned by name in the Bible is Matthew 1, verse 5, in the genealogy of Jesus. In her name, even though she's Rahab the forgettable, her name is attached to this man named Salmon, about whom we know very little. But we know that together, Rahab and Salmon had a son named Boaz. And Boaz shows up in next week's story as the hero who gives us this brilliant picture of what we receive in Jesus. Rahab is attached to a man named Salmon. Together they have a family, and that family line continues. Rahab the monster, the man-eater, the prostitute, the dragon, Rahab the forgettable becomes a name that's etched into the annals of history and even becomes a name included in the genealogy of Jesus. A non-Jewish, prostitute, dangerous woman included in the genealogy of Jesus because she threw all of her hope on the God of Israel at just the right time. What's interesting is that Rahab shows up two more times in the New Testament. One time, among another great list of names in Hebrews chapter 11, which is called, like, referred to by some as the Hall of Fame of Faith. You got these amazing names of, of people who did these great exploits by faith. But then in Hebrews 11, verse 31, we've got this, this name again. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She who was not a moral exemplar is listed as a moral exemplar because of her faith in the God of Israel. And then she shows up again in the letter from James uh, 2, verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? In the New Testament, her story is completely rewritten. She goes from being known as Rahab the prostitute to Rahab the righteous. Now go back to last week. How many of you remember, uh, Tamar has her children, and uh, when the, the hand of the first emerges, they tie something onto his hand. What is it? Yeah, scarlet thread, scarlet ribbon, scarlet cord. And then again, Rahab is up there in her house with her family, and the Israelites give instructions for something to do, throw it out the window. What does she throw out the window? The scarlet cord, the scarlet thread. Now, the, the authors of the Bible worked with God, and they were great storytellers. This is not an unnecessary detail. And what we find is there's this scarlet thread running all through the Bible. And in that scarlet thread, a, meshen, a, a message and a mission hidden in a family bloodline, a scarlet thread. And this scarlet thread finds its end and its fulfillment in the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of Rahab, Jesus the Messiah, who had come not in battle gear to spill the blood of his enemies, but would come in humble carpenter's clothes, whose own blood would be spilled as a sin offering for, for not his sins, because he didn't commit one, but for the sins of the whole world 
who came not to shame and to cast out the sinner, those who's, who are known by their deeds, Rahab the prostitute, but to extend the mercy and the invitation of God to exchange our sinfulness for his righteousness through what he has done on the cross. And for those of us who were far off to be brought near and given a place of belonging, a new family name, and a new part to play. And for these reasons, Jesus is in his incarnation had this amazingly attractional ministry where he was a, he was a magnet for the marginalized. He was a person that, that the notorious sinners who would never go to temple because they knew the Pharisees would be judgmental were so drawn to him. His reputation became a, being a friend of sinners. The Pharisees said, you, you and your disciples are always partying with all these horrible people. We're fasting and being all pious. And he's like, yeah, there's a reason to celebrate because the dead are coming back to life. And the, sin are find, the sinners are finding forgiveness in a place of belonging in me. Because God said, I, I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the conversion of Rahab the prostitute to Rahab the righteous proclaims to us, even in the sixth book of the Bible with Joshua, the good news of Jesus Christ, that no matter what you have done, there's a place of belonging for you in the family of God. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote the scarlet letter where the woman who committed adultery had to go everywhere with that letter marking her. Every time we read the name Rahab in the Old and New Testaments, it was Rahab the prostitute. And, and all of us in this room have done things that we're ashamed of and things that we deeply regret. And some of us have such a guilty conscience, we feel like when we walk into a room like a church, we feel like our letter betrays us, our sin betrays us. You're trying to sing, you're trying to get into it, and all you can think of is the stupid stuff that you did 10 years ago or last night. And the inclusion of someone like Rahab, someone who was known in her identity by her behaviors uh, and transformed into someone who is righteous gives us tremendous good news and gives us a clear message about the kind of Messiah and King we receive in Jesus and the kind of kingdom that he wants to have, a place where, where sinners are made well and brought to wholeness, a place where the self-righteous are humbled and receive correction at the teaching of the King. This is good news for us. A prostitute was included in the family line of Jesus. Maybe you can be. Maybe I can be. Martin Luther, uh, the great uh, reformer, uh, when he was translating the Bible into German so that the common people could, could read the Scriptures, was, was deeply plagued with his own identity issues. And as, as he was translating the Bible, he had these thoughts that were screaming in his ears, who are you to do this? Do you remember the stuff that you've done? And he would go to battle. He would yell out loud at the enemy as, as he was having these battles in his mind and for his heart. And one night he became particularly exasperated with the enemy of his soul, and he took some paint and he slathered on a wall, Martin Luther, I am baptized. He was reminding himself and he was reminding his enemy that through Jesus Christ, that identity has been redeemed. It's been washed. It's been transformed. That he was now hidden in Christ with God. That being in Christ, he was a new creation. God had made him who had no sin to be sin for Martin Luther so that through him, he might be the righteousness of God. He was clothed with Christ and given a new identity. He said, Martin Luther, I am baptized. 
And when our sins, when we're reminded of our sins and the things that disqualify us from being part of God's family, for those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we only need to respond to our own heart and to the enemy of our soul. John Odom, I am baptized. May you see a I am baptized. That is, that is who I am. That is my truth. More than my Myers-Briggs or my Enneagram or the stupid stuff that I've done, my, my identity is that I am one who's been baptized into Jesus Christ, loved into the family of God, pre- bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. We tell that to our souls, and we live that out in the world. If Rahab can be redeemed, if Tamar can be redeemed, and if they can be used to play a meaningful part in God's story, Maybe we can too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, your great love for us. Thank you that uh, before the creation of the world, you were planning this. Scripture says, Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. You always knew what you would do for us before an encyclopedia's worth of sin that we would have against you, you knew what you were willing to do to rescue the world that you loved. And not only the world writ large, but the individuals in this room and the people we love and the people we hate. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This Christ has come into the world proclaiming good news of peace, established through his blood, offering the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be made right with God and right with one another. This Christ will lead our feet into the way of peace if we will cooperate with him. If you're here this morning and uh, your sins betray you, and you're so cognizant in this moment of the stupid stuff that you've done, the destructive stuff you've done that's hurt your own soul or hurt the people that you love, scriptures tell us if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just, and will forgive forgive us our sin and purify us of all unrighteousness. Not only will he forgive us and wipe the slate clean, he'll purify us and make us new. And if that's you today, you need to confess sin just in the silence of your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I've rebelled against you. I've made choices that have hurt myself and hurt others, and I need your forgiveness. And God will be faithful to do what he's promised to do. He will forgive you, and he will purify you. And for those of us in the room whose hearts have grown hard and callous toward people who sin differently than us, those of us who maybe have walked with Jesus and we feel like we are exempt from the category of judgment and who've grown hard and stubborn hearts, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would break our hearts, remind us again of the cost of saving us on the cross, and help us to have hearts of mercy toward those who sin differently than we do. And together, may we be made into the body of Christ, broken, blessed, multiplied, and serving the world. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you that your love is so patient. Your love is so kind. Your love is so generous. And your love includes a person like Tamar and Rahab and me. In Jesus' name, amen.